This episode is sponsored in part by Linode. Simplify your cloud infrastructure with Linode's Linux virtual machines and develop, deploy, and scale your modern applications faster and easier. And hey, listeners of Full Stack Journey podcast can get started on Linode today with $100 in free credit. Find all the details at linode.com slash fullstackjourney. Grow your IT career with online IT training from Full Stack Journey sponsor, IT Pro TV. Just for you listening, there is a special offer, a seven-day free trial and discount of 30% off all plans. Visit itpro.tv slash full for seven days free and 30% off. Use promo code full at checkout. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. Welcome back to the Full Stack Journey podcast, where we talk about the ongoing evolution of the IT professional. We are so glad that you decided to join us for episode 48. can't believe we've done 48 episodes already. My goal with the podcast today, as always, is to help equip and prepare listeners for their journey of learning across the full stack of technologies that are present, not only in your data centers, but also in the cloud environments. Um, joining me today is fellow podcast host here at Packet Pushers, Drew Conry-Murray. Drew, how are you doing? Hey, Scott, how are you? I'm doing well. I hope you are. Yes, I am. Thank you. As, as best as can be in the situation exactly. we find ourselves in. Right. We're doing the best we can. Give it 2020. So, hey, 48 episodes. That's great. I, don't, I, I think podcasting is not like age where people want to be 48 for the rest of their lives, but I'm, I'm glad to see these numbers going up. Uh, yeah. Well, as someone who, you know, who just turned 50, it's definitely not the same with podcast episodes. <laughs> yeah, <So>. same here. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, you know, today, Drew and I are going to do a little, something a little different on the podcast. Um, you know, normally, I would have a guest on talking about sort of a, a career shift they've made or, you know, something, the particular technology that they are involved in or have had to learn, something of that nature. But uh, Drew and I were kind of going back and forth a little bit about podcast ideas, and, and uh, we thought it might be useful for listeners just to talk a little bit about, um, you know, what, what are some trends that are happening in the industry? And... Uh, where and how might listeners, you know, be wanting to prepare for said trends, right? And um, and and you know, just kind of bounce back and forth some ideas and things that are happening in the industry and how we think that's going to impact uh, those of you that are listening to the show as IT professionals. Um, so hopefully you'll find this uh, useful and interesting. So yeah, there we go. Yeah, this is the time of the year when we start to think about sort of the year that's behind us and what's coming up. Uh, so a trend show seemed like it might be a nice idea. Yeah, yeah, and, I, and I, it's not something that we've typically done, but I think it's it's different, and and hopefully it'll you know resonate with the listeners. So I thought we'd start out the discussion first. You know, uh, Full Stack Journey is part of the Packet Pushers network of podcasts, and Packet Pushers is really you know sort of cut its teeth and really really well known for networking, right? I mean, you know the 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 tagline, you know where. Or too much work. Networking is never enough. Is that yeah, right, Drew? That is correct. Right. <laughs> uh, Drew, I, you know, I'd really like to, to hear from you. Like, you know, what, what's what's going on in the networking industry these days? I mean, I, you know, I used to be involved in it, and now having switched over to more of the cloud native stuff, it, um, I'm not as plugged in. But you know, what what are the big trends that are happening in networking these days? Oh boy, um, you know, you'd probably be surprised. It's kind of the same thing it's always been in some ways, but a lot more focus uh, on network automation and actually trying to get it off the ground and making it happen. Um, white box has been an ongoing discussion. And of course the cloud, the cloud touches everything, even networking. Right. Right. Okay. 
you know, network automation, something we've been talking about for a while. I mean, um, is it still, you know, kind of, kind of stuck? Yeah, it feels like it is kind of stuck in some ways. We're, we're talking about Python and Ansible a lot, particularly on uh, heavy networking and other shows. Uh, folks are using Python, playing with Python, finding out how to work on it. Ansible is being talked about more and more, so it's gaining some traction. And we're also seeing a lot of vendor attention uh, being paid to automation. Um, things like intent-based networking, where the whole idea is that um, you've got a whole essentially software-based platform that's going to handle all the fiddly bits of configuration and uh, state and allow you to sort of at a higher level say, I want this outcome, now you go make it happen. Uh, and then, of course, AI and ML are getting a lot of talk in the networking industry, also tied to automation. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, in, intent-based networking has been around for a little while. I, I remember you know, several years ago that being a big splash and there being several startups that appeared with the idea of a tent-based network, but we never could get an idea of like, you know, what is, <laughs> what does that mean exactly? Or even how a networking professional would express or define intent, right? You know, is that, is it a YAML file? Is it something else? Right. Right. Um, what does that right. look like? Right. Yep. Well, yeah. So that's, I mean, it's easy to describe harder to actually put into practice, but we are seeing companies like, Abstra, Glueware, Anuda, who have actually brought products to market, primarily focused around configuration of a data center. Uh, that's where they're putting their effort into. So uh, they have to interact with a variety of network OSs, and they'll monitor uh, configuration, have an understanding of the full picture of the network state, and then as you need to make changes, you sort of program it. I think a lot of them are using YAML or Yang um, as their sort of higher-level language to do that uh, interface. But then that system goes out and touches all the requisite devices and supposedly makes the changes. They tend to be focused on, you know, a rack or a pod. Uh, so they're sort of baby steps into the data center, but they're starting to make inroads. Uh, and it seems like it's a real thing. It's just taking a while for folks, I think, to get their head around it. Uh, it's very hard, I think, for network engineers and network administrators to trust software, I think, is part of the issue that automation itself hasn't really fully grabbed hold yet. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, I, I could certainly see that. Uh, I had a Twitter conversation not too long ago, and folks were talking about um, several networking people weighed in talking about you know how the, the the challenge for a networking professional is that they don't they don't get to choose just you know one operating system. You know they can't say oh hey I'm going to use this or that right. It's it's like you have a a you know I don't want to say a plethora, but you have several different operating systems. You might have some Cisco iOS or NXOS or whatever you know. The flavor is these days. <laughs> I'm probably dating myself, but you know, and then you've got, you know, Juniper and you've got, you know, other pieces and all of these are similar, but slightly different with slightly different syntaxes and slightly different support for various technologies. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, you have to, you have to make sense of all of that um, in some fashion in a way that, you know, yeah, that, and it's not just, you know, the, the network operating system. It's also, you've got, you're the networking person, so you're going to be touching the firewalls. You're going to be touching the load balancers, and those are separate platforms with separate operating systems, separate configurations, separate interfaces. So I, I actually think the bigger picture that networking is starting to grapple with is that automation isn't necessarily the challenge because you can write a script to make a configuration change and it'll generally work well. The issue is orchestration, you know, going from system A to system B to system B, C in the proper sequence and making sure each change gets made in the proper syntax um, with the proper commands and that that change you made didn't break something down along the line. So it's more of an orchestration issue than it is, I think, an automation issue. Yeah, that's fair. Orchestration and automation are, you know, related, of course, but but different enough that that distinction is important to make, I think. 
but we also talked about, you know, like white box. Um, I know, you know, my, my personal favorite in that space was like cumulus and then mm-hmm. they got acquired by Nvidia. So like, what's up with that? You know? <laughs> yeah. We've been talking a lot about this on heavy networking as well. Um, it was Mellanox that bought cumulus, but then Nvidia bought Mellanox. So there was, a, oh, okay. Right. A, a multiple fish swallowing each other. Um, yeah, for and Cumulus was sort of the, one of the leaders in white box on the network operating side. They built a network operating system based on Linux Cumulus, uh, the network OS. Uh, but in the enterprise space, I think the jury is still out on white box. Uh, hyperscalers and cloud scalers they sort of drove white box in disaggregation because they could leverage the economies of scale using um, basically just a, a cheap box with an ASIC and then the operating system of their choice because they wanted, they're building their own operational tools. They wanted as much control and programmability at the software layers they could get. And then a bunch of fast, dumb, cheap hardware underneath. And that's not the model of the traditional enterprise networking vendor. So it's hard to harder. It's had a harder time getting into the enterprise, I think, because not for lack of trying, you know, Cumulus has made a good uh, push at it. There's other uh, open source networking operating systems out there. Uh, the latest flavor is Sonic, which was originally created by Microsoft, and now there's a Dell distribution specifically for the enterprise. But I think a couple of things are holding back white box adoption at scale in the enterprise. One is that, one, the legacy vendors are just good at holding on to their customers. They have good account control. They have salespeople they can send out there to you know, do the steak dinners and spread the FUD. So you know that's a potent weapon that shouldn't be underestimated. And second is, I think... The network uh, is a little bit afraid of change in part because any change could create risk. And the way networking engineers and you know network leaders are judged is, is the network up? Is the network stable? And so anything new could introduce instability, and that's a risk they don't necessarily want to take. So finding that value of what I can get out of NetBox versus introducing potential risks, I think, has caused people to hold off. Yeah, I mean, the the power of momentum should not be understated, right? You know, if you, if you have an organization and you have folks who are skilled in, you know, platform X, whatever your enterprise, you know, networking platform is, whether it's Cisco or Juniper or, you know, whatever, right. 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 Um, it's, it's not a trivial thing to just to say, Hey, we're going to switch all this to something else. I mean, there's, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of value in, in saying, I know how this platform works. I can find skills on how this platform works. You know, I sort of built my career around this platform and now you're going to change it. Yeah. So yeah, even internally within an engineering department, you may get resistance, uh, which I think is, yeah, another issue that's smart to point out. Sure. Sure. Well, it'll be interesting to see how things go. So from, from that perspective, let me ask you this then, you know, um, if I were a networking professional and I see these trends happening, it sounds like the smart bet is to focus on automation and orchestration moving forward. I think so. Yeah. Um, APIs, it seems like, are going to maybe start to crack open some of the vendors, you know, the traditional legacy vendors who have not been great about cooperating other than on sort of the base protocols. Um, That's going to be maybe the glue where you can start to do more automation and orchestration. So, yeah, if you're thinking about networking going forward, that's probably one place to look. I think the other is, you know, cloud networking. This is really a greenfield space for a networking engineer to go and become an expert, and there aren't a lot of them. So if you're looking for a place where you can make your mark, think about cloud networking, think about becoming an expert in how, you know, Azure or AWS uh, exposes networking capabilities to customers and what you can do with them. Yeah, that's a good point. We'll, we'll come back to the public cloud here in a little bit because I, I think that's a, a big enough trend probably to warrant an entire episode 
just by itself. Yes. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, from the networking perspective, certainly like, you know, uh, I think there's a lot of value in, in a networking professional being able to say, you know, yeah, I can design a fabric for you for your data center and, and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But I can also go out here and help you lay out, you know, how all of your VPCs should be carved up and how the traffic should flow between those VPCs and, you know, how traffic's going to move in and out of your public cloud estate. Yes, that and also how I can make sure that security policies and performance policies are going to be enforced inside these cloud-native applications that the developers are frantically building. Uh, yep. You know, <laughs> security and policy always go hand-in-hand. Indeed, indeed. We're pausing the podcast for just a minute to tell you about today's sponsor, Linode. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing enterprise infrastructure, you deserve simple, affordable, and accessible cloud computing solutions that let you take your project to the next level. Simplify your cloud infrastructure with Linode's Linux virtual machines and develop, deploy, and scale your modern applications faster and easier. Get started on Linode today with $100 in free credit. You can find out all the details at linode.com slash fullstackjourney. Did you know Linode has 11 global data centers and provides 24 by 7 by 365 human support with no tiers and no handoffs, regardless of your plan size? In addition to shared and dedicated compute instances, you can use your $100 in credit on S3-compatible object storage, managed Kubernetes, and more. So host your website, build your app, store or backup media, it's up to you. And it's all free with $100 in Linode credit. Visit linode.com slash fullstackjourney and click on the Create Free Account button to get started. And be sure to check out Linode's new YouTube channel for video tutorials, security tips, and more at youtube.com slash Linode. And now back to the podcast. So maybe that's a good time for me to sort of flip the questions to you. Um, obviously, containers we've been talking about for a long time and Kubernetes. Are there other things that folks in the system and administration space or the uh, infrastructure space should be thinking about? Well, that's a, that's a really good question. I think, um, you know, at, at a high level, um, there's a, there's a few different things going on. Kubernetes and containers, of course, right. Um, are going to be a thing for a, a little while longer yet. Um, but, um, you know, I think, I think the, the smart bet is in a couple of different places. One is in, is in Kubernetes and containers, but also in automation and orchestration. Um, you know, Kubernetes being a specific implementation of an orchestration platform, but mm -hmm. also just, um, you know, looking at as, as a sysadmin, like how can I, how can I extend my influence? How can I, uh, you know, uh, increase my ability to be effective and then the, the range of my reach? How can I improve that through uh, increasing use of automation, increasing use of orchestration? And that reflect that ends up sort of, um, what's the term I'm looking for here? Manifesting itself mm -hmm. in a variety of different ways, right? So you, you see tools like Ansible and others showing up to help with configuration management, right? You see tools like, Terraform or some of the others um, that are leveraging general purpose programming languages, Pulumi, CDK, um, others for infrastructure as code. Um, you see Kubernetes itself, uh, you know, uh, representing the deployment of applications and associated application constructs like, you know, a stable network endpoint in the, in the service and deployments and that kind of stuff representing themselves as a, as a, as a DSL, you know, domain specific language in, in the YAML that you create. Um, so all of these, I think, are sort of um, uh, reflections or particular threads of a greater emphasis on automation and, and orchestration across everything that the sysadmins do. Um, on, the, on the different side, um, apart from that, though, I think it, it would be interesting to talk a little bit about sort of 
where the industry is going with you know ARM and mm-hmm. and and the Intel platforms, right? Um, so because I think there's some some interesting stuff there uh, that that may sort of shape what happens with uh, with sysadmins. Yeah, certainly Apple with their recent announcement about having ARM uh, as part of their hardware base now. Yeah, I mean the big announcement of the, you know the the M1 chip and rumors of the M1X chip coming in a in a you know in the near future it's going to be even you know more whatever more powerful more coarse <laughs> you know more more everything right um, and that's sort of been but, the knock on ARM right is that it's it's cheap and it can be fast but it doesn't necessarily have the power that uh, the Intel the x86 platform did. Um, yeah, I, I, but the thing, the thing for me, like, is, you know, I, I could certainly see that, you know, okay, like you look at the specs for the, for the M1 and if I have them correctly, it's like, you know, eight or maybe it's four, four performance cores and four high efficiency cores. And mm-hmm. then they have their own integrated GPU and all this kind of stuff. Right. And, you know, early, early, you know, benchmarks are saying it's, you know, it's providing performance equivalent to like a core I seven, you know, type. Uh, Intel CPU and, mm-hmm. and that's fine, right? You know, okay, lower power, you know, lower power consumption and great power, you know, great sort of great performance out of that yeah, and decent. Yeah, 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 yeah. But like the the real the real sort of benefit of the x86 was that it was it was ubiquitous, right? right. <laughs> you know, you could you could write for x86, and yes, there are operating system differences and that sort of stuff. But like you could write for x86, and then you could run an, an x86, you know, VM or a container. You could get it from the cloud, that kind of thing. And and I I brought up on Twitter the other day. I was like, I'm curious to see how the the interplay between you know, AWS and you know a couple of years ago introduced their Gravitron, uh, Graviton, excuse me. Um, CPUs, and then not too long ago, re, uh, announced the Graviton 2 ARM CPUs. And so they're moving some of their services like DynamoDB and others onto these Graviton ARM CPUs and showing mm-hmm. like amazing, you know, efficiency gains and performance improvements at lower power um, and lower cost. Um, so, you, so you've got that side of the house, right? And then you've got Apple introducing you know, a consumer or user end user oriented sort of arm platform, you know, is this going to be the, the special combination that will finally break the X, X86, you know, chokehold on, on the computing industry. Right. Right. Um, but, and, but, and I, you know, but you're one of the, I guess one of the drawbacks then is this also mean more work for developers who now have to make sure that the software they're writing, particularly to the consumer space is going to run on this platform because they didn't have to worry about it as much with x86 was, which was ubiquitous as you mentioned. Yeah. And it is, it is a good question. And so I, I guess that's, that's kind of the thing is like, you know, it would, it would be one thing for, you know, some, some of the container platforms, Docker in particular with their build kit, you know, introduce sort of multi-platform build. So you could build a, you know, an arm Docker container, you could build an x86 Docker container, right. um, sort of from the same source, right. Assuming that your code that you were writing would compile, but you did have that other extra thing. They're like, okay, if, if I'm deploying an arm on the back end, you know, maybe I'm running in the public cloud and I'm deploying an arm on the back end. Well, you know, you have that dreaded sort of difference between production and development, right? Yes. Because you don't have arm, you know, in your, in your development area, you're, you're developing on an x86 laptop, you know, or whether it's a Mac or a Linux box or windows or who knows, whatever, it doesn't matter, but it was an Intel or an AMD CPU inside. And then you deploy to something different. Now that we've got these two the same, okay, you've eliminated that. But like, is it is it gonna you know? Like, I don't know. Like, is it going to really take off? Is this going to be the piece that'll that'll break it? I know, you know, folks are some folks, and I understand why a little concerned about you know the introduction of you know yet another 
platform. And to me, it kind of looks like, I don't know if you remember this, Drew, but you know, back in, in the, in the, um, in the mid nineties, when windows NT first came out, mm-hmm. right. And it was like, uh, you know, Microsoft's like, okay, here's windows NT runs on Intel CPUs, runs on MIPS CPUs, runs on, um, there were like four platforms, alpha, uh-huh. um, from deck at the time, there was a fourth one. I don't remember what it is off the top of my head. Right. But there was like the Intel CPUs and then like three different flavors of risk based right. CPUs and right. like, okay, you can, you can go run this on whatever platform you want. Um, and, uh, you know, there was this, this, I don't want to call it, I guess the right term to use is fragmentation, right. Of, of yep. computing platforms yep. and making sure you did, you get the right binary for the right platform, da, 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 et cetera, et cetera. And it almost feels like we're almost headed back in that direction again. Right. 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 I mean, yeah, I could see people saying, all right, you know, this Intel hegemony is over, but it was, you know, in some ways a, a benign or beneficent hegemony because things worked. Yeah. Yeah. And once AMD came on the, on the scene and started, you know, sort of prodding Intel to pushing them a little bit, you know, (laughs) right. Exactly. Which, you know, competition is always a good thing. And then we really, we really saw some, some improvements. Now, I mean, you know, some, some might say that the whole uh, side lookup, you know, attacks all of the hardware vulnerabilities that have come out Mm. from speculative execution and Mm -hmm. all that Mm -hmm. um, might have been the death knell. And maybe we'll see some interoperable arm platforms moving forward. I don't know, right? Um, that would be great to see some interoperable ARM platforms as opposed to everybody's own particular flavor of an ARM platform. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's hard to say for sure. Um, but it will be interesting. And I think for IT professionals, um, there's, a, there's a couple of aspects to consider here. One, like, you know, it's, it seems like everybody in their, and, you know, and their sister is using a, a Mac these days in the business world, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so as these you know, corporate procurement cycles happen, you know, what's going to happen when these first M1 Macs start showing up in the, in the, in the corporate world. Right. And what sort of challenges is that going to do, especially when things like, um, you know, Docker for Docker desktop for Mac doesn't work on an M1, you know, (laughs) system yet. Um, so if you are a developer, you know, like some of the tools that you use just aren't there yet. Um, and, uh, so, you know, what's going to happen there. Um, and so it professionals need to kind of be aware, you know, like, Hey, this is, this is a, a thing that's going to be real. I mean, Apple is moving in that direction. So yes. either if you, if you are the kind of it professional that is responsible for helping manage desktop systems and all that, then this is something that you need to be you know deeply involved in watching. Right. Right. Um, and that's a change because a even, you know, 10 years ago, Apple and the enterprise just, that really wasn't an issue. Uh, but now with folks coming back to Macs as a business platform, yeah, that's a good consideration. That can, something to keep in mind for 2021. Yeah. And, you know, the other, the other aspect here. So, so yeah, you know, listeners who are involved with like desktop support really need to keep an eye on that and, and kind of be aware of where their company's headed, you know, because there may be a shift back to, back to Windows on Intel which would be great for Microsoft and, and sort of the success that Microsoft's having with the windows subsystem for Linux. Um, you know, I see and hear about developers that are moving to that platform and being very, very happy with, with how that works. So yeah, that may be a, you know, maybe an interesting thing there. Um, but, uh, but the, you know, the other thing to look for is if you are involved in that cloud native space and you are looking at, um, you know, if your company does start adopting these arm based platforms, you know, then, I think there's going to be, uh, you know, for, for the sysadmins and the, you know, the, you know, DevOps or maybe the SRE folks, um, you know, start looking at, you know, does it make sense for us to start switching to ARM-based instances in the cloud, you know, primarily mm-hmm. driven by AWS. I don't think Azure or Google have yet introduced anything, although I could be wrong there. 
but that'll be something to, to keep an eye on as well, I think. So speaking of cloud native and you mentioned infrastructure as code, obviously Kubernetes has taken up a lot of conversational oxygen, Terraform, uh, not quite to the same extent as Kubernetes, but it's up there. Are there other projects or tools that you think sysadmins or SREs or infrastructure engineers should be paying attention to uh, going forward in regard to infrastructure as code or cloud native? I mean, the, the biggest trend in sort of some of that automation orchestration seems to be the adoption of general purpose programming languages as opposed to a, a specific um, DSL. You know, Terraform has, uh, uh, what, do they, what do they call it, the HashiCorp configuration language or HCL, mm-hmm. um, which is their specific language that they use to describe a Terraform configuration. It's, it's well known, it's well understood, but it is specific to Terraform, right? Okay. Um, and so if you are, familiar with say javascript or typescript or even one of the more you know quote unquote hardcore programming languages like golang um this is like an entirely different thing for you um it's a whole new thing that you have to figure out and and it doesn't necessarily follow the same constructs that mm-hmm. a that a traditional programming language would follow you know sort of like for loops and you know if then statements and so on and so forth but then you have you have with folks like Amazon with CDK um, and uh, folks like Pulumi um, with their product um, that are saying, hey, let, let's take a general purpose programming language, you know, take JavaScript or TypeScript or Golang or Python and write declarative infrastructure as code using this, this general purpose programming language. You know, for CDK, it's JavaScript. For Pulumi, they have a variety of like different language runtimes. And then this, this really appeals to the developers so the question kind of becomes from a from a DevOps SRE kind of person, you're like, are you coming more from the software development background? And mm-hmm. if so, these things are going to be really attractive to you because they're letting you write infrastructure as code in the language that, you know, probably that you already know, um, rather than making you learn a DSL. If, on the other hand, you're coming back from the infrastructure engineering sort of position, you're a vSphere admin or, you know, Linux sysadmin or something like that, then that means, well, hey, I'm going to have to pick up some you know, new language as opposed to using a DSL. And this is something I've discussed with Plumi and others, sort of that, that challenge of, like, you know, how, how do you attract not just the programming folks, but also the infrastructure folks when you start using a general purpose programming language? Um, that's a big trend that I see, um, but it's unclear to me yet just how much of an impact it's going to have um, for that reason, right? Like, you know, who, who is going to be responsible for infrastructure as code? Is it going to be the infrastructure folks or is it going to be the developers? Is it going to be some team in between? Is it going to be this DevOps team? Is it going to be the SREs? <laughs> um, and, and I mean, you, you know, we laugh about it, right? But the reality is like a lot of organizations are still trying to figure out where that should live. Yes. Yeah. I guess it may depend on who in the organization tends to have the most muscle or support or backing. Yeah. And, and if we, if we buy into the, the you know theory that you know the developer is king um right. where we've seen so much influence by the developer over the last you know several years of developers driving um, a lot of what happens in uh in various organizations then that would lead you to believe that um, these general purpose programming language tools are probably going to become ascendant um and will will take over sort of that infrastructure as code space um, and you see them also extending that idea to like say, hey, if you want to deploy onto Kubernetes, don't write YAML, write some code that um, will, you know, for lack of a better term, generate YAML on the back end, right? Okay. You know, in other words, you're not going to express your, your <laughs> Kubernetes deployment as YAML. You're going to express it in some programming language. And then their, their tool will 
will convert that into something that the Kubernetes API will natively understand. So yet another translation translation layer. Well, I mean, isn't, you know, isn't, you know, all computing come down to one or more layers of abstraction? It's turtles all the way down. <laughs> it is. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so I think that if I, if I were, if I were giving some advice to, you know, like IT professionals sort of in that infrastructure space, I would probably, you know, I would, I would probably give them advice very similar to what we were talking about for the networking professionals is you really need to pay attention to automation orchestration and, um, and all the various sort of flavors that are coming in. From there, pick one that makes sense for your skill set and your background. Pick one that makes sense for what you're trying to get done um, in your job or in the job that you want to get, uh -huh. and uh, and then move forward there. All right, that's good advice. Aiding your journey to becoming a full stack engineer is full stack journey sponsor IT Pro TV. Going full stack is partly about career growth, right? And online IT training from IT Pro TV that can help you grow. And they can help you, the savvy Full Stack Journey listener, grow at a 30% discount off of all IT Pro TV plans. More on that in a minute. A recent MIT study found that IT occupations have grown by 19.5% between 2004 and 2019. Compared to other jobs, that's more than eight times the growth over the past decade. That's right, earnings have grown significantly for individuals working in IT. So if you're in IT, you've picked the right gig. But don't set your career on cruise control thinking, eh, it's all good. Change is the norm as evidenced by the full stack movement, right? And to keep earning that big paycheck, you need to keep your skills up. IT Pro TV has you covered from CompTIA and Cisco to EC Council and Microsoft and many more vendors, more than 4,000 hours of on-demand training. Engaging hosts present information in a talk show format and they're live every day and shows go from that live studio to the web in 24 hours so that you can stream them. Courses are conveniently listed by category, certification, and job role, and you can stream those courses live and on-demand worldwide via Chromecast, Roku, Apple TV, PC, or their iOS or Android apps. Learn IT, pass your certs, and land that fancy new full-stack job you've had your eye on with IT Pro TV. Visit itpro.tv slash full for a seven-day free trial and 30% off all plans. Use promo code FULL at checkout. That's itpro.tv slash full and use promo code full at checkout. One more time, itpro.tv slash full and use promo code full at checkout to try it free for seven days and save 30% off all plans. And now back to today's discussion. You know, we mentioned the public cloud earlier. I think that's sort of a, a big thread that, that plays into all of this. I think it's, it's a big driver for a lot of what's happening. I don't know. What you think, Drew? I mean, we're definitely hearing about it in the networking space. There's a lot of talk about hybrid cloud and multi-cloud. Hybrid cloud is from your private data center into some public cloud instance. Multi-cloud is having workloads in different public clouds, AWS, Amazon, Azure, et cetera, and then trying to connect services among them. Uh, so yeah, it, it's <laughs> there's a lot of dust and a lot of noise, but not a lot of actual implementation as far as I can see in terms, particularly multi-cloud, um, that hasn't stopped a lot of startups from moving into that space to be ready with a solution for when you are there. Yeah, although I, I think the whole multi-cloud thing is is actually a matter of perspective. I was reading an article, I don't remember who it was that was that had published it. If I, if I could find it, I'll put it in the show notes. But the, the reality is like what this author was saying is that multi-cloud is already here. It's just um, multi-cloud from a different perspective. It's like, you know, this team over here is using Azure uh -huh. and 
has been for a while and, you know, probably always will be. And this team over here is using AWS and has been for a while and probably will continue to do so. Right. Yes. And so from an organization perspective, they are multi-cloud, right? Yes. But from an application perspective, they're not. Right. Yeah. And I think that's where in the networking space, the multi-cloud folks are saying at some point, some executive for whatever reason, maybe cloud arbitrage or whatever, they're going to want to connect applications that live in disparate clouds. And now that's going to fall in your lap. And I haven't, Yeah, I, it seems like a bad idea, but you never know. Uh, yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's hard to say. Like it, at first there's this part of me and I'm probably traveling, you know, channeling my, my inner, you know, Yvonne Popelniak here <laughs> in that, you know, we're, we're introducing some complexity that, you know, yes. isn't, isn't necessarily justified. Yes. But on the other hand, it's kind of like, you know, look, if, if you have, if you are, if your organization is mature enough to have these independent teams pushing forward services, right. Um, and, you know, so you've got team A that's pushing forward a service or an application on your know, Google cloud or Azure AWS, and you've got team B that's doing it on a different one. And, and you need to have some sort of connectivity between these two. Um, then, yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's probably just a necessary evolution of how this is going to happen. And the more that we see, um, and this is something we haven't talked about. The more that we see networking become more application aware, or the more that we see applications become more networking aware, uh -huh. depending on how you want to look at this, uh -huh. um, then I think that's probably a given. And 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 the 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 case in point here is the, is the rise of like service mesh, right? Which uh -huh. you know. Like, is that a networking technology or is it a not a networking technology, right? Because what we're doing is we're connecting application endpoints together and providing some enhanced visibility and observability into that. But you're still talking across a network. That's right. Even if that network is in one sort of physical domain, uh, logically, it is a network. Yeah. Right, right, right. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's fascinating to me, like... Um, you know, how the networking industry hasn't really paid, as far as I can tell, and feel free to tell me if, if I'm wrong, Drew, hasn't really paid that much attention to service mesh. They're kind of like pushing it off as like, oh, that's an application thing, you know, right? Um, but it's yeah. really about, you know, I mean, it's really about like, you know, authenticating services across the network. It's really about providing encryption across the network. It's really about, um, you know, service discovery, how we can, how applications can find one another on the network. So... Yeah, I think it's because developers got there first uh, and they needed to build these microservices and they needed to connect up all of these processes and services. And so they sort of had to build networking because the networking folks were still in the data center doing their usual stuff. And so, yeah, uh, that's why they developed the service mesh. But you're starting to see the, um, the industry connect into uh, container-based networking, cloud-based networking. I think VMware in particular has moved the fastest in this space. Uh, they have uh, service mesh capabilities. They're building a CNI. Um, I think it's called Antria, the project Antria. So they are there. Uh, Cisco's following, but I think not as quickly as VMware. And then there are startups that are building very much networking and security-like capabilities. It's maybe sort of mimic a load balancer it would look like to a networking person, uh, but it's designed to run cloud-native uh, for microservices and containers. Yeah, so networking is catching up, but right, this is a whole new area that, again, if you're looking to find the greenfield, service mesh is one of those where you can stake out some expertise. 
Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I think both, both from a, both from like an infrastructure engineer perspective. So if you're coming at this from like a sysadmin type perspective, or if you're coming at this more from a networking uh, background, I think service mesh is a ground where both or all have the opportunity to jump in here and really stake out, um, you know, some, some room and establish yourself as somebody who knows what they're talking about. And and I think this is going to be increasingly important. I actually think that we're probably going to see service mesh play a much larger role in that multi-cloud connectivity because the reality is that, you know, aside from the application specific perspectives, connecting multiple clouds together is just a matter of VPN endpoints. That's an interesting point. Yeah. Sort of a a service mesh across public clouds. Wow. You're kind of blowing my mind here. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, you think about it, right? Like, you know, today it's not that hard. I mean, you guys have probably talked about this in one of the podcasts, one of the networking podcasts where, you know, this, this hybrid cloud thing from your data center to the public cloud, right? It's a matter of, you know, a direct connect with AWS, or it's a matter of setting up a VPN and, yep. and establishing a VPN endpoint and then managing routing tables and that kind of stuff. And then it, and then it looks like, you know, a single IP network. Right. Right. Um, so from a, from an IP networking perspective, you know, it's so different for us to connect an Azure VNet and a AWS VPC and a, and a Google network, whatever they call them. Um, but then the really interesting point is we can say, now, how do I, how do I begin to let applications that are running on those networks begin to discover one another and talk to one another. Yeah, the thing is that the, the basic, at the connectivity layer, it's pretty simple. It's IP to IP. You can encrypt the uh, tunnel. That's not a big deal. The, uh, the issue is how you operationalize it, how you make it workable across multiple different clouds who have multiple different ways of describing their services and how they interact, uh, how you throw all that in a dashboard so that I can keep an eye on it and monitor it and troubleshoot it. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. There are there are day two concerns about yes. <laughs> operating a multi cloud network, yeah. um, and being able to provide the sort of performance and uptime, uh, you know, objectives that you need to be able to provide um, when you're dealing with networks that aren't under your control. Yeah, and this may I think one of the things we'll start to see with SD WAN is that they're going to find multi cloud as a, a new area for them to get into because they've already worked out how to connect your branch office into public cloud applications. So going from then public cloud to public cloud is also something that they're going to be pretty good at. And they've got that operational infrastructure for you to be able to monitor it and run it. That's an interesting thought. I hadn't really considered the application of SD-WAN concepts to, you know, cloud to cloud connectivity, but you're right. Yeah. It put a virtual instance on either end and kind of you're all set. I mean, it's obviously more complicated than that, but... Right, right. It always is. It always is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, very good. So, you know, um, we've been talking, uh, you know, and we've hopefully given listeners some ideas of things that they can begin to, you know, think about, ways that they can, you know, maintain their own skill sets, uh, that sort of thing. But, you know, when it comes to learning these new things and sort of establishing yourself as an expert or whatever, it used to be that you would go and you would, you would look at an industry certification, mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm, I'm curious. And I don't know. I mean, do industry certifications still mean anything? I mean, in the networking space, absolutely. And I think they will continue to mean things uh, in part because that's what recruiters know what to look for. Uh, oh, I need a networking person. Okay. I need to see, are they a Juniper expert or a, do they have the CC, whatever uh, for the Cisco side, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, still relevant. Do you feel like certifications mean a lot in the SRE or the sysadmin or the infrastructure as code world? See, I, I think from from that perspective on the system side, I think they're I think they're not as relevant as perhaps they used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I 
I could be wrong, but it just feels like it's more about, um, it's, it's more about like sort of, you know, what, what you, the tools that you know, as opposed to a certification, right? Like right. if you look at being a, you know, let's say an SRE or something of that nature, you know, they're going to be looking for, well, you know, do you know a Terraform or an equivalent tool? Are you familiar with AWS? Are you familiar with, you know, this or that or the other, right? And, and yes, there are certifications around that. I mean, AWS has its own set of certifications. Right. A lot of these sort of cloud native tools, Kubernetes has its piece and they just inter- introduced a security related one in KubeCon um, uh, last week. So you have, you know, certified Kubernetes administrator and certified Kubernetes application developer and then certified Kubernetes security something. I don't know right. what it is. Right. Um, but so you have that, but like there's this whole um, ecosystem, you know, this whole cloud native ecosystem of all these tools that have no certifications at all, right. but yet are critically important. Right. You know, I mean, like there's no certification for Prometheus and Grafana, but you'll find Prometheus and Grafana in pretty much every <laughs> Kubernetes environment these right. days. So is that then just a fact of the velocity of change uh, in the software space in that the organization hasn't had time to catch up? Because the way I think organizations view certifications as it's a kind of proxy. It's a proxy for competence, maybe some experience, and at least, you know, the act of self-discipline and self-regulation because you were able to organize yourself to take a course and pass it. Um, but because things are moving so fast in the software space that organizationally you haven't caught up yet and maybe certs will get there, or do you think this velocity is just going to continue and certs won't really have a space there? I, I will admit that it's, it's really hard for, from, from my perspective, it's really hard to see for sure, because, you know, like having been in the Kubernetes space for a few years now, I both recognize that there's still we've come a very far, a very long way, right. In, in the last few years, mm-hmm. in terms of what, not only what you, what you can do with the platform, but in terms of the adoption of the platform. Right. But I also recognize at the same time, looking back in sort of my enterprise experience, that there's this massive wave of adoption that has not even yet begun. And that's from, you know, sort of the traditional enterprises that typically take three to five years before <laughs> they catch up. Right. 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 Um, and so I think, you know, right now it, uh, I, Maybe what it is, it's it's a matter of of where you are in the life cycle. Like if you if you stay on this this cutting edge, then that velocity main, is always there. That velocity maintains. Yep. And you're going to see a constant churn of environments, and and maybe you know the evolution of the SRE practice, um, as opposed to you know things that aren't necessarily SRE but are more DevOps and uh, a little more static, if you will, uh-huh. um, are a little farther back the the tail. And uh, you'll find those to be a little more static and, and you'll see certifications sort of grow around those things and provide that sort of stability and I'm not sure what else, word, whether what I'm looking for, but that, that sort of mark of like, okay, this is ready for, you know, sort of a broader level of adoption now than perhaps it was when it was newer. Right. right? right. It has some structure around it. Yeah. yeah. So, so it's, then like a, it's like a life cycle. So if I'm then, you know, thinking about what I want to do next year and how I want to advance, how do I show to a a company that I want to work for that I have chops in Grafana, Prometheus, Kubernetes, if I can't show them a piece of paper? Yeah. And that's a, that's a really good question. And I don't think as an industry, we've figured that out yet. I mean, you, you can turn to, you know, blogs, but that's not really, I mean, you know, like there are some people who just don't want to maintain a site like that. 
but right. it may be very, very good, right? I mean, right. <laughs> they may be an expert, but they just don't have a way of demonstrating that. You, you can't turn to social media because, again, like some people just don't care about stuff like that. Um, and just putting it on your resume isn't enough, right? Right. So, it, you know, you, you ask a great question, but I don't think there's a great answer yet, to be honest. Huh. Okay. Um, I think, I think that's part of the, that's part of the life cycle is like, you're going to have this, this period of time when these technologies are still relatively new, um, and have not begun to see broad adoption across the enterprise, um, that, you know, you're going to have people who establish themselves as experts, but there really isn't any way to like quantify that. And it's not going to be until the life cycle of the product gets into that big mainstream enterprise adoption phase, if it ever happens, that um, then people will, well, they'll start wanting to hire on that. And to your point earlier, when they wanting to start hiring on that, then that's when somebody's going to come up and say, hey, we need to create a certification around this so the recruiters know what to look for. Right. So Scott, for 2021, business opportunity, the full stack certification, you, you can own this. <laughs> there we go. I'll jump on that right away. <laughs> start, start writing your book. <laughs> That's right. Absolutely. Although, you know, the interesting thing is like, uh, you know, the way we use full stack engineer and the way we talk about, you know, being a, you know, sort of this full stack of technologies um, is very different than how the developer world looks at it. And I've had a lot of people contact me about the name of the podcast and they're like, it's not what I expected. Oh, really? So, Huh. Yeah, okay. yeah. I mean, in the programming world, full stack is like somebody who works on both the back end and the front end. Uh -huh. um, and so they may be doing stuff, you know, like with, a, you know, some sort of uh, database or you know, business logic or whatever, but also doing, you know, user interface right. and front end and that kind of stuff. And so yeah. somebody who does that, a full stack engineer, right? Um, and so, yeah, I've had people who listen to the podcast and and, you know, they enjoy it, which is good, but it wasn't what they expected. <laughs> okay. As long as they enjoyed it, though, that's the important thing. Absolutely. As long as they enjoyed it, that's the important thing. All right. Well, I think we should wrap up now. Thank you, Drew, for hopping on and uh, just, you know, let, bouncing back and forth about, you know, what the future holds. And hopefully we can, uh, we, we provided some useful information to the listeners. Yeah, I hope so. It was a fun conversation for me. I hope uh, folks got something out of it. Um, I guess my big takeaway is, there are a lot of wide open fields out there. Uh, if you have the time and the inclination to just sort of grab a space that interests you and start digging into it, then there's plenty of opportunities regardless of what discipline you're in. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right, Drew. There's, there's, there's a lot of innovation happening in a lot of different spaces. And so if you as an IT professional are wondering, you know, hey, how do I, how do I plot out my 2021? There's a, there's a lot of spaces where you can jump in and uh and establish yourself as you know as a leader in that in that part of the that part of the industry so um listeners thanks so much for joining us today here on the full stack journey podcast we really really appreciate you giving us the gift of your time um if you have the opportunity to provide some feedback to the show on itunes or google play or stitcher or any one of the numerous locations where we are syndicated we certainly would appreciate that and it certainly helps um, listeners find the show and uh, for us to grow um, our reach. Um, if you're interested in interacting uh, or you know, communicating with the podcast, you can hit us on Twitter as at FSJ Podcast. Um, and uh, I'm Scott Lowe, your host. You can hit me on Twitter as at Scott underscore Lowe. Uh, as always, episodes are available on the Packet Pushers website at packetpushers.net. So thanks so much for listening and have a great day. Mm -hmm.